Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, shall we go to a temple today? Today is a lovely day to make an offering to the Buddha. Of course. Every day is a lovely day to make an offering to a Buddha. Right. So how does one make an offering to a Buddha? What is the right way to do it? There are a few wrong ways to give. What is most important is intention, I suppose. There is no giver, there is no receiver, and there is nothing being given. With this mindset, one can achieve selflessness. During his life, followers of the Buddha offered him food, water, clothes, flowers, and incense. Generosity towards any sentient being, however, is also an offering to the Buddha. By observing the precepts, we honor the Buddha, ourselves, and the receiver of the generous act. Is that so? I think I'm ready. I will offer this stick of incense. What will you offer? Perhaps I'll offer this fresh apple. Let's be off, then. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be discussing Buddhist temple etiquette. What is common Buddhist temple etiquette? What is the doctrinal foundation for that etiquette? How is this etiquette different between different schools of Buddhism? We hope you enjoy. So, what is common Buddhist temple etiquette? As a preface to this answer, I would like to discuss a little bit about the different purposes of temple visits, and I would like to mention some of the doctrine behind it. First off, what actually is a Buddhist temple? The obvious answer is that it is a building designed to be a place of worship and commemoration of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. But doctrinally speaking, there's a little bit more to it than that. It's actually the home of a real Buddha. Buddhists erect temples and stupas over relics of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and according to the doctrines of death and emptiness, it is believed that these relics are worthy of worship and veneration. Making an offering to the relics, venerating the relics, and erecting temples over the relics accrues a great deal of merit. These relics can be, and often are, bodily remains left over from the cremation process, but in many East Asian Buddhist schools, they can also be sutras and actual texts. Just as the remains left over from the cremation process, the sutras are thought to be remains of the Buddha's presence in this world. In that regard, the Dharma and the Buddha are thought to actually occupy a Buddhist temple space. In addition to relics, you'll often find statues, which typically store relics as well. And these statues are thought to be the actual Buddha that they represent. Because a Buddha can be anywhere at any time, the statue can be just as much a Buddha as the next statue next door can be. This is quite the same in Christianity and other Western religions. Churches are colloquially called God's house, and statues of Christ are often thought of as being an embodiment of Christ or a representation of Christ present in that building itself. There was a whole schism over this issue, as some Christians criticized others for worshipping the statues and not the real thing, and actually there were at times similar iconoclastic movements in Buddhism. Regardless, the temple is a place that is marked by the presence of the Buddha. In that regard, temple visits are visits to make offerings to the Buddha. You're offering time, you're offering money, food, water, incense, clothes, etc., Making an offering to the Buddha is one of the three most important things that one has to do in order to become a Buddha in their own future. The other two things are to receive a prophecy from a Buddha of your future Buddhahood and to hear the Buddha preach the Dharma. Making an offering accrues a great deal of merit, and so East Asian Buddhists will make offerings at holidays and special occasions, in times of hardship, 
or sometimes just on a regular basis. In that regard, to show respect before the Buddha, certain etiquette is observed. No short sleeves or pants, no hats or sunglasses, no photography, be quiet and be respectful, etc. In Japanese Buddhist temples, which I'm most familiar with, the procedure is, when you approach a temple, you take a bow at the front gate called the Sanmon. Then you wash your hands and mouth at a water basin called a Temizuya. Then you light some incense, and then you approach the statue of the Buddha or the relic that's held at the center of the temple, and you bow, and then you throw a coin as a donation into a donation box. Then you ring a bell or a gong, and you bow a second time, and then you leave, bowing again at the Sanmon. I should mention that most East Asian lay Buddhists are not consciously making offerings such that they become Buddhas in their futures. Religion in East Asia has a social cohesion and community function, but rarely does it have a strong belief aspect. This means that if you ask an East Asian Buddhist, do you believe in the real existence of the Buddha? Or if you ask them, what school of Buddhism do you believe in? You will get actually funny looks. They simply don't think of it that way. Religion is social and revolves around ritual and tradition rather than belief and belonging, which is something that Westerners might be used to with religion. So what is the doctrinal foundation for this etiquette? There's a myth out there that Buddhism differs from Judeo-Christian religions in that there is no guilt and shame aspect to it. This myth, I would say, is false to a degree. Most importantly, I should mention that right here, right now, we are trapped under infinite past lives of bad karma. And that is what stands in between us and Buddhahood. And so while we shouldn't be guilty and ashamed of it such that we are depressed and sad and upset and woeful, we should know that we are working against more than just the bad deeds of our current lives. Additionally, there's a spectrum of shame and guilt. On the one end of the spectrum is self-pitying, lamenting, self-loathing type of guilt and shame. The other end of the spectrum is guilt and shame born out of good-intentioned respect and humility. Language fails us here because guilt and shame have negative connotations, but the experience I'm talking about does not have negative connotations. It is much more close to humility, but I must say there still is a moral aspect to it. Just like in English, shame and guilt have to do with moral transgressions of some kind. Either way, it's important to show that kind of shame and humility and guilt, whatever it ought to be called, before a Buddha. And that's why all of these common temple etiquette practices are observed. Doctrinally speaking, the Buddha defeated dukkha and desire for you. He arose in this world, and he enlightened sentient beings through skillful means, and he deserves a great deal of respect for that. In that regard, all of the etiquette points I mentioned are meant as a form of respect, prostration, shame, guilt, humility, etc. before the Buddha. I want to drill in on this idea of guilt and shame without negative connotations. I think that term needs more defining so we can actually understand what we're getting at here. So why, like you used the word humility at one point. Why does humility not cover this term that we're talking about? This Where does it go from humility to guilt or shame? That's a really good question. The important part is that humility alone in English doesn't have a moral connotation. The moral connotation that I speak of has to do with previous or future or current actions. Humility is just a mindset or a state of being where one does not overinflate their sense of self. They're not self-centered. They're not egotistical. They don't think more of themselves than they actually are. Humility and modesty in that regard are synonymous. And 
Typically, humility and modesty are good characteristics to have. These are good values to have in how people go about their daily life and about their actions. And they're certainly good things to have before a Buddha. But in religious connotations, in religious conversations, you would say that shame that's born out of humility and modesty has a moral aspect. So whenever you're before a Buddha, you're aware of the fact that you have infinite past lives of transgressions bearing you down, and you're aware of the fact that the Buddha is representative of purity and perfection, and you're aware of the fact that there is some sort of status gap between you and the Buddha himself. And this shame, you might say, is humility with the moral side. Humility and modesty with the aspect of I've done bad acts in the past or even in this life itself, and I should respectfully show shame to the Buddha in that regard. This isn't something that I entirely personally agree with, but this is something that serves as a foundation for common Buddhist temple etiquette. Now, guilt is a whole other thing. I've been using shame and guilt together because I'm trying to create a patchwork of language that kind of covers what I'm talking about, but guilt probably overlaps the very least because guilt is feeling bad because you've done something bad and you're immediately in that state of being guilty, right? It's kind of an immediate right now thing. It's also an objective thing. Shame is subjective, but people can be guilty and not shameful, right? And in that regard, that brings in a lot more of the moral aspect and a lot less of the humility and modesty aspect. But all of this is meant is meant to diagnose and discuss and understand the difference between me right here, right now, and the Buddha in front of me that I'm making an offering to. Yeah, this is just a spot where English does not have the word, I guess, because I'm not, I'm having a hard time conceptualizing this idea just because the words don't fit well. And I think it also has to do with a bit of a Confucian influence as well. In Confucianism, there's something known as Li, which is ritual propriety. And ritual propriety has to do with knowing one's place in the ritual, right? And uh, okay. observing one's role in that ritual. The role of the person making the offering to the Buddha is one of shame and respect and one of prostration. And the place of the Buddha is the place of the Buddha. So in that regard... This might also have an aspect of understanding your standing in the hierarchy, uh, yeah. if there is such a hierarchy, and understanding really actually practicing and cultivating the details of the ritual itself more so than meditating on how you might feel like you're less than, <laughs> if that makes sense. Okay, so that helps a fair bit. The core here is noting that like you're in the presence of someone or something or some concept that's worthy of respect and deference. Maybe is would deference be a good word for this, maybe? Deference does help a lot. Deference is absolutely a huge part of what someone should observe with themselves whenever they are in the presence of a Buddha at a temple. Okay, that helps a lot then. Okay, I think I get this now. So, let's get back to what we were talking about before. How is this etiquette different between different schools of Buddhism? This is a good and an important question. Uh, the person who originally asked this question did not ask this originally, but I wanted to talk about it because you might notice something interesting that I mentioned about Japanese Buddhist temples. 
I mentioned that at these temples, offerings of money are made. And for those of you that may know, this violates one of the precepts for monks, which is that they cannot handle money under any circumstances. This precept actually was relaxed for Mahayana Buddhists. And so in China and Korea and Japan and Vietnam, making monetary offerings to a temple is allowed and kind of expected and very typical. There's usually a dedicated individual out of the entire clergy there whose job it is to handle that money and deal with the financial standing of the temple. And oftentimes it'll be a lay volunteer who does this, but that money goes directly toward keeping the temple doors open. It's all for maintenance. It's all for feeding everybody. It's all for kind of keeping the temple going in a currency-based economy. So modern laws prohibit state sponsorship of religious organizations in Asia. So Japanese Buddhist temples, Chinese Buddhist temples, Korean Buddhist temples, etc., they can't receive taxpayer money to support their religious organization. So this law is broken and avoided extremely frequently for different reasons in specific cases, but ultimately, the vast majority of the time, these temples are not entitled to any sort of regular and reliable support from the state. And so to that end, they rely on donations from lay people. That's why it's become kind of a tradition for a lay person when they visit a temple to offer the change in their pocket or something like that. Now, this is very different from what goes on in South Asia. In South Asia, in countries including Nepal, India, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Sri Lanka, Theravada Buddhism is much more dominant. And it's Theravada Buddhism that actually is a lot more strict about the 10 precepts for monks. And the reason that they are a lot more strict in that regard is simply because of the relationship they have to the bodhisattva vehicle. As we discussed before, there are certain texts, there are certain places in certain texts that kind of question morality as an absolute, right? In the Vimalakirti Sutra, for example, bodhisattvas are kind of like rock stars. You know, they kind of hang out where all of what you might call the worst people are. And it questions whether or not they're actually the worst people, right? So bodhisattvas don't hang out with other bodhisattvas for the most part. They don't hang out with other enlightened beings. They hang out with thieves and with criminals and with violent people and hunters and people that kill for a living and all that other stuff. And the reason they do that is because that's where the suffering is. Well, the Theravada Buddhists say that the bodhisattva vehicle is not accessible for everybody at every single time. And some people, because of the capacity for their understanding of the Dharma, they need the Shravaka vehicle. And the Shravaka vehicle observes the 10 precepts a lot more strictly. To that end, monetary offerings in these South Asian Theravada Buddhist temples are not as prevalent because, like I said, it's prohibited for the monks to handle money. And so in that regard, what they will do for almsgiving, what lay people will do for almsgiving in these regions actually is with food offerings and with clothes and incense and water and things like that. And I should mention that uh, the Sanskrit word for this almsgiving is dana, which is valued very, very, very highly in uh, lay South Asian Buddhism and to a lesser degree, actually, in East Asian Mahayana Buddhism. Even though it's still valued heavily, you actually very rarely see food offerings being made at Mahayana Buddhist temples. It's usually actually just money because the money goes and buys food, right? Or organizations like businesses or charities will donate food or donate money that's earmarked for food to these Buddhist temples. 
But in South Asia, you'll actually frequently see food being given directly to a begging monk on the side of a street or something, or in front of a temple. And that's not as common in East Asia. Join us next time when we discuss the different realms of Samsara. What are the different realms of Samsara and their native inhabitants like? Are gods of other religions grouped in with devas or considered their own thing? What happens when these occupants die? Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. See you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.